Hello, listeners. Before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Boundless Podcast. I'm Paul Millard, and I created this podcast because I'm passionate about making sense of the future of work and having conversations with the innovators, creators, and thought leaders who are carving their path in today's fast-changing world. You can check out the podcast and more on boundlesspod.com. Noel, so I'm excited to talk to you today. I think you're somebody I've looked up to for a lot of wisdom, and uh, you've worn many hats uh, in your career. Leader, you're now husband, father, um, and have also been a leader in the uh, health and wellness space and also pretty involved in the conscious capitalism space. So welcome to the podcast. I'd love to start with uh, just turning it over to you. did a brief intro of you, but how would you introduce yourself? Okay. Well, thank you, Paul, and I'm uh, flattered and honored to be on the podcast. Um, I will say that I always get concerned when people say they 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 think you have wisdom. I wonder <laughs> if it's code for saying that they think you're old. Um, but uh, but if it, if wisdom comes with age, I'll take I'll take it. <laughs> um, yeah, I would describe my, my background as as eclectic. Um, I had spent uh, the first 20 years of my career, for the most part, at a human capital management consulting company, consulting mostly to large corporations on their human capital management programs, um, but did a smattering of consulting to uh, not-for-profit organizations and um, actually a Taft-Hartley Union Trust, which was quite interesting. Um, I think one way I'd characterize where I came from was uh, based on a, a little television, uh, eight, 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 um, eight episodes of a snippet about the 80s. And I came to uh, I came of professional age within the 80s. And um, one of those snippets was on uh, greed in Wall Street. And it kind of occurred to me the environment in which I kind of graduated from college and came of age. Um, it was uh, very much during um, some of the exuberance of the 80s. And, and um, you know, certainly in retrospect, looking back and seeing some of the uh, some behaviors that I'm, I'm not awfully proud of, of uh, my my cohort. But in any case, that's that that's when I kind of came of age. And I think that had a formative and a real experience on me. Um, 
I spent 20 years, as I said, in large company human capital management consulting. Um, for the most part, I found it quite enjoyable and um, learned a lot and fortunately worked for a firm that was very caring and ethical. So uh, despite the times we grew up in, I think I was, I was, I was at a great at a great firm. Um, but as, as, uh, as those 20 years were, were nearing a finish, I, I didn't feel like I was growing, um, much as a professional. Um, I had a, I had a health issue and I kind of had a midlife crisis as some would call it at the age of 41 and kind of wanted to reexamine, um, where I might, uh, go with my life. Um, I, you know, then kind of um, went rogue, as some might say. Um, I uh, worked with a buddy and ran an outdoor adventure guiding business, um, certainly not for uh, the commercial benefits that that would offer. Um, but it was uh, it was fun to be outside and sharing uh, sharing my love of the outdoors uh, with others. Um as uh, as a few years of that kind of um, um, elapsed, um, and my daughters became teenagers and college was looming, um, it, it kind of became clear that I would have to go back and make a real contribution uh, to the world. And uh, I looked to marry my love of the outdoors and of health and well-being uh, with consulting. So I started up a organization, um, a small consulting practice to help companies improve health and well-being among their employees. And not long into that effort, um, it became clear that, you know, to be effective and for an organization to be effective in helping employees with employee and health and well-being is they had to really approach us from an organizational culture and organizational behavior perspective. So that brought me into uh, or, or back into, because my consulting was there also, back into the organizational culture, organizational behavior space. Um, I, uh, after spending some time consulting with organizations on employee health and well-being, I um, worked with an organization that focused on ethical conduct and, and how culture affects uh, ethical behavior. Um, so I spent about a year and a half with that organization in that world, and uh, a couple months ago went back off on my own and I'm working on a couple of different and interesting projects that kind of meld a lot of uh, a lot of what I've done in the past. So that was uh, probably not the Reader's Digest short answer version, but that's kind of the background. <laughs> oh, that's great. And welcome back to the freelance world. So, that, so, look, so looking back... Uh, early in your career, in many ways, you followed the default path. But I'd love to hear if there was, did you have a different perspective on things? Did you kind of know you were going to do something different down the down the road? Or was it really that health uh, challenge that spurred it for you? You know, that's a that's a great question. You know, what was it? And I think, you know, we're all kind of want to create a narrative um, that is both simple and maybe flattering in a way that drives yeah, us towards. It, it always makes towards, more sense looking back. That's right. That's right. It's right when you have the the luxury of ignoring certain circumstances and focusing on other circumstances. Um, I think there were kind of a few things that that really drove that really drove 
drove it. I would say the the first um, the first was is even even from the beginning, I was kind of very mindful that um, I didn't want to get on the treadmill of of work and look up when I'm 60 years old and and kind of realize that all this time had elapsed and and I wasn't all that um, sure that I, I kind of pursued the things I wanted to pursue. So I think from the beginning I had that and and interestingly I think it had some it had some effect on an otherwise fast rising career within the consulting firm that I was at is when I would bring those issues up um yeah I was kind of it, people looked at me funny you know in a hard charging consulting world I don't think that they want to be reminded that they're on this uh, this treadmill. So I think I had that from the beginning. You know, the other, I guess, big influences were uh, uh, 9-11. Um, you know, fortunately um, for me personally, I wasn't downtown. I was working midtown at the time. Uh, but my children were five and six years old. And um, I was of that that at that point in my life, I was probably working as hard as I ever worked. And that was kind of a real uh, bunch of cold water in my f- face saying that, you know, you can, um, you know, you don't know when the, you know, the clock's up and, and um, you better make sure that, you know, you're doing, of course, you're doing things to pave the way for the future, but you also have to make sure that, that, that every day is, is a good day. Um so there was so that that was an item. Um, my old consulting firm um, had bought another consulting firm, and that merger didn't go uh, too well. Um, and I was very much in favor of of the merger, um, but that kind of unraveling of that merger was um, tough for me personally because I saw a lot of growth coming from that. Um, Nicely, our firm offered a sabbatical program, so I took a 12-month sabbatical in 12-week uh, sabbatical in 2005, and that was another opportunity to kind of pause and reflect. Um, and I think that kind of really iced that that something would need to change. And then I had a um, and then I had a health issue in 2007, um, which you know, Knockwood obviously turned out well. Um, but that really kind of was the final kick, you know, kick in the butt. Um, so, so you know, it's it's kind of a series a series of things. All of them it look unfortunate in the short term, but I, I I think they all there's a lot of positive that came out of those. Right. So it sounds it sounds like the '80s going into the working world, you kind of had this uh, outsider perspective of what is everyone doing? Why is everyone so worried about making so much money? And then that kind of really bubbled up around 9/11, and uh, mm-hmm. you started reflecting deeper on maybe there's a different path or a different second chapter in my career. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, right. And they they don't happen all at once, those realizations, but they kind of, you know, fester in your mind and, and you know, and grow in, in my mind anyway. Definitely. Yeah. What, do you have any specific uh, self-reflection you do? Do you go through anything formal or is it just kind of stepping back and getting distance? Yeah, that's good. Another good question. Um, for me, I, I exercise a lot and I do a lot of solitary exercise. So I do trail running in the woods and hiking and, um, mountain biking and road biking. So, th- so that's kind of my meditations often are, uh, are out in the green space. 
um, you know, with the heart thumping and um, with kind of forced distance from all your electronics. Um, so I would say those are probably the, the points of best uh, personal reflection for me. Um, you know, also, fortunately, I have kind of friends and acquaintances like yourself who are kind of half a step removed from my day to day life and, um, you know, real thoughtful people. And, uh, yeah, I get, get, get so much out of those relationships, um, you know, and, and they really add to my self reflection as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's, uh, how do you, how do you think about building community? Like as a freelancer, has that changed since you've left the corporate world? In, in terms of building community, building community as it affects me or just in general? Or even, I mean, when you're, when you're working in a big company, right, you have a lot of people who are just in your circle that you spend time with every day. And when you go out on your own, you kind of need to cultivate that a little more. Has becoming a freelancer changed that for you, or have you, or have you always been someone that's kind of developed those relationships? Yeah, good. Another good question. Yeah, I, I would. Um, yeah, I mean, when I mean, you know this, and I'm sure most people who listen know this. Is you know, if you're in the professional world and you're working, you're working pretty hard, and right. you're kind of your circle is of people that are fairly like you and, you know, orientation is fairly similar. So there's like this effort you have to make to kind of break out of there. Now that probably has been one of the the best benefits of, of being so enthusiastic about uh, cycling is, uh, is that the mountain biking and road biking world is, is made up of a, much uh, more eclectic group of, of individuals. So, um, you know, that, that kind of forces you to kind of think, or, uh, think about things, you know, from others perspective. Um, so that had been beneficial. Um, it also, um, a, bi- a big reason why I got involved with conscious capitalism, um, I'm co-chair of the New York city chapter is also for that reason is, is how do I kind of, um, embed myself in, um, different groups of, of people. Um, some that might think of the world in very similar ways for me, but I don't know. I, I hope that they don't in a lot of ways because I yeah. think that's really important for personal growth and right. for making our world, uh, a world a better place. So yeah. So I, I, you know, as a freelancer, I think it's real important to, um, kind of find communities of people that might have some characteristics like you, but also that have some characteristics that are not like you. Um, you know, I think that's again, real important for personal growth and for, uh, for helping our world. Fantastic. So I'd love to hear more about the conscious capitalism work. So you've been doing that for a while where do we stand right now? Zero to conscious. How is uh, capitalism? <laughs> <laughs> well, among among you and I and, and listeners to this podcast, I'd say we're pr- pretty pretty good. Um, I, I don't. Uh, are we are we getting you know, better? Again, is it is it uh, getting worse? Is it getting better? Yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely getting better. Um, you know, if if we were to ha- be having this conversation. 10 or 15 years ago and we were 
you know, to be talking about organizational culture, there would probably be a lot of people who would not really know what the heck we're talking about. So, of course, today, most people hear organizational culture. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, everyone, I think a lot of people think about it very differently, uh, which is good and not good. Um, but it's in the it's in the vernacular. So I think people are thinking about it. Um, you know, I think capitalism in general, put a, put aside a, for a second conscious capitalism, we'll leave it into it is, is, you know, it's taken, it's taken a hit on the chin since 2008, I think, and, and understandably and rightly so. Um, you know, my, I, the data I've seen and the, certainly the experiences of I've had suggests that the uh, younger generation, uh, of folks are, um, not as enthusiastic about unfettered capitalism as perhaps uh, I was in the in the 1980s. Um, so so I think that there is a kind of a growing I don't know if distrust is the right word, but um, you know, and I don't think I think cynicism is a little strong, but I think there is a real willingness to kind of reflect upon um, the fact that while most would agree that capitalism has done a darn good job as an institution of helping pull ourselves out of a life of scarcity, um, that it's created this other life that while it isn't one of scarcity for most people, um, it is one of scarcity for some people and they're being left behind. It is one that has, you know, created some real strains on the environment and the climate. Um, it is one that has created some, you know, societal strains. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's, uh, people are, are looking harder at capitalism now and, um, you know, not necessarily throwing it under the bus, but, you know, um, you know, what's working, what's not working and, you know, kind of how can we reformulate our approaches, uh, um, so that things work better for everybody. Um, not just for those who've kind of made it to the top of the, of the capitalism uh, mountains. Right. And what are some of the good examples you've seen of companies that are uh, really thriving, doing things in a different way? Um, yeah, I, I think I think the ones that stand out most in my mind are organizations that um, have – done a good job of um, including their employees as and caring for them as kind of part of a family, um, that employees are not just tools or instruments towards creating profits for shareholders, um, but that the purpose of the organization um, is also to create um, – is an institution to cr to create good for others for other stakeholders. So organizations like uh, I think the Container Store always kind of stands stands out there, where that's that's a home for uh, many people to work on a retail floor uh, to do work that they feel proud of and passionate about, and to be paid a wage that's probably many of us would say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. Um, so they don't feel like they're kind of being, uh, being used to, used as tools. So I think that's kind of one organization. I, and there are many others out there that treat employees that way, but, um, sadly there are probably more that don't. Um, 
So I think that's that's a, an example, at least from the kind of employee stakeholder perspective. Yeah, I, I definitely have seen it too. I think that it's an exciting time. There's companies like uh, Managed by Q starting up in New York that are really trying to take a different approach. And uh, mm. I think the more and more examples we see, we kind of see, okay, maybe there is a different script that's possible for organizations. So uh, definitely yeah. an exciting I would say, time. Yeah, I would say the uh, another thing that I think is kind of particularly noteworthy on that was um, I think it was Lawrence Fink, who's the, the CEO of BlackRock. Um, I read in the newspaper this morning that he kind of came out on record that they're now going to be evaluating – uh, companies in their portfolio, um, not just based on um, profitability from purposes of stand of shareholders, but how they're contributing to society. Um, and you know that that's heartening. Now, I, I, I hope that's more than just words. Right. Um, but you know, in in an age where kind of many of our historic institutions have have kind of eroded. Over time, you know, religion um, obviously being being one, um, there's not many institutions that individuals place faith in, um, and I don't mean that in terms of religious faith. I, I mean in terms of you know right. good good goodwill faith, and the institution of business, which I think in the late in the has been steady in the Gallup polling, and big business has been. Trust in big business and that institution has been in the 20 percentage range, I think between 20 and 25 percent. Um, faith in small businesses, I believe, is in the 70s uh, percentage range. But it would really be really nice for people to feel trust and faith and confidence in business as a stabilizing social institution that um, helps us achieve some of our dreams in this world and um, doesn't unnecessarily get in the way of um of, achieve, of achieving those dreams you know for for other people right yeah i i think i actually saw some data from uh, edelman they do a trust uh survey yep. and uh i think people are looking more towards business than uh i think compared to academia or government institutions god knows they're doing better than uh congress so uh, <laughs> the, bar is, the, the bar is the bar is low yeah. there but uh, definitely some big opportunity. Um, if you could shift one thing organizations are doing today, uh, just ba- I know you go pretty deep into the research and science, and uh, there's still a big gap of what companies are doing and like what the science tells them what to do. Um, but from your standpoint, what would you have every organization do? Like, what is the wake up call uh, they need? Mm, um. Yeah, I've been, I've been kind of thinking about this. I would, I would say everything from a board level down to an executive management level to middle management level to an employee level, um, there should be a periodic kind of reflection and self-scorekeeping that happens. Um, so periodic, you know, I don't know, a couple times, couple times a year for argument's sake. And so what would that, what would that reflection and self-scorekeeping look like? Um, and I'll kind of bring back conscious capitalism here is, uh, you know, conscious capitalism, you know, one of its tenets is 
um, stakeholder theory, which is developed by Ed Freeman at the Darden School and University of Virginia. And this is back in the mid 1980s. And stakeholder theory is kind of a bit of a rebellion to shareholder primacy theory, of which Milton Freeman was kind of the force behind. And shareholder primacy theory uh, theory says that said, hey, it's about the shareholders. Do whatever you have to do to maximize returns to the shareholders. And stakeholder theories uh, suggests that um, if you focus on as many wins as you can for the various stakeholders, uh, those being employees, customers, uh, society, suppliers, and the environment, um, as well as well as some others like the media. Um, if you if you focus on as many win win wins as you can for those, then in fact we'll we'll have a better world and shareholders will do just fine. Right. So so this reflection uh, I would say is is that the, all of those different levels within an organization is that they should take out um, you know get away from the day to day business and say how are we helping customers lives be better. How we are, and what are we doing well and what aren't we doing well? How are we making our employees' lives better? What are we doing well? What are we not? How are we doing it with suppliers? How are we doing with the environment? How are we doing um, with our, within our communities and, and society at large? And, and, and I think that that reflection, which again is probably in tune with what Lawrence Fink of BlackRock said, I think is helpful self-reflection. And I, I think there are things that all of us could do that are not that heavy a lift that make the world, uh, that would make the world better through that type of, uh, self-reflection. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's such a challenging issue. I've dug deep into the, uh, shareholder primacy view and it's, uh, it was shocking to me to find out that it actually didn't emerge until the 1970s. And before that, shareholder primacy was seen as kind of an absurd idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still relatively recent. So uh, we're still early in this game. So hopefully there's uh, opportunity to change. But um, it's, right. uh, it's hard to conceptually shift people from something that seems so obvious and simple. I mean, it make it makes common sense, right, that you would maximize shareholder value. It sounds good, uh, mm. but in reality, you can actually get better outcomes by uh, prioritizing all the stakeholders first. Right? Yeah, I think, and I, you know, and I wonder. I mean, you you took a what few people do is kind of this academic, um, real long view of 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 uh, of this. Um, you know, as an example, you know, I grew up in the '80s and wasn't oriented towards this, so you know, all all I kind of knew was this shareholder. You know, right. primacy world. And I think a lot of people did also. So even though the tradition is, you know, in some ways not that old, it's so deeply embedded within so many people, um, that yeah, it is, it is a tough, uh, it is a tough shift. And, and to be interested, I'd be interested in having, you know, at some point this discussion with you, but what, you know, was shareholder primacy, was it really kind of just a way of kind of trying to simplify? A, uh, an otherwise more complex thing like like stakeholder theory. Um, well, that's that's what I think it was. Uh, I wrote about this in one of the articles I uh, wrote over the summer. But digging into it, it was uh, I, for, I think the academic's name was Jensen, and I can link to it. Um, mm. But 
the argument was that it would be a better outcome, right? I think the challenge was it was a really sticky idea in terms of people kind of latched onto it. I don't think there was any nefarious, we're going to get rich off of this. Um, And then when you linked up shareholder value with some of the uh, ways they shifted executive and uh, equity compensation, everything kind of exploded. Um, Mm. But it it was actually pretty interesting. I read the uh, small book called The Shareholder Value Myth, and it goes back into the the legal history of it as well. There was a... uh, there was a legal case where the owner of the Cubs um, wanted to, I th- think they were trying to get him to play night games, and he said he didn't want to. And somebody sued him and said that it would make more money for the minority shareholders. And I think the courts ruled that they actually didn't have to do that. Um, and it was the first ruling that said you mm. don't actually have to maximize shareholder value. And is still the legal standard. You don't actually have to maximize shareholder value legally unless you are uh, selling a company. Um, so in that case, you actually have to maximize the price. So it' uh, pretty fascinating industry uh, history. And uh, I've been asking people if they think it's a legal obligation to maximize shareholder value, and most people do think yes. Yeah, yeah. The meme is so deeply embedded. In, in our minds uh, that, um, right, this, despite kind of uh, a more kind of complex and nuanced view of the, um, it, it, you know, it, 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 it does have such momentum behind it, but maybe through our good work, we can help <laughs> out to balance that. <laughs> One step at a time. Um, That's right. So I'd love to shift to uh, just some quick questions. And uh, start with the first one. If you, if you were giving advice to somebody starting their career right now, what kind of advice would you give them? Uh, I, I would say that there's probably a few things. Um, I would say for most of us, um, the richness of our relationships is what will not just drive long-term kind of personal satisfaction in life, um, but it also um, will open up many opportunities for you to pursue commercial things that um, are most interesting to you. So um, I know we only have a limited capacity as humans to to keep keep relation to build and keep relationships, but uh, always be open to kind of uh, learning from others and building relationships and especially with people who are different than you. So I would say that's kind of the first thing is, um, you know, make sure you spend effort uh, building relationships and with people not like you. I would say uh, the second thing is, uh, is always do what you say you're going to do, become reliable. Um, I think in the professional world, there's this notion that if I'm the smartest person, I'm, I'm the most valuable person. Um, in my experience, 98% of what we need to do is, is not all that complicated, um, but we need to be reliable. Um, so uh, be reliable with, with people and, and you'll be trusted. And uh, if you're trusted, it's, you'll feel better about yourself and, um, and, and be able to be more helpful uh, to others. Um, and then I would say the, the third thing, it's kind of playing off that, is just be 
be clear with with your commitments with people. Um, um, so it is part of kind of do what do what you say you're going to do, um, but just just uh, be clear. Say if if uh, you have a discussion and someone wants to follow up, say hey, if I connect with you on Friday on that, is that does that work for you? Um, or you can even be loosey goosey if you feel like it's not exactly uh, a hard deadline. Say if, uh, I'll try and connect with you on Friday, but if I can't get to it by then and it's early next week would that work out um you know in my experience that if if you conduct yourself that way then people will look to you for help um and will trust you and um you'll feel better about yourself and of course there will be some commercial benefit to that as well good stuff so you do have some wisdom <laughs> it's unsexy but it's uh yeah I think- I think it is helpful. And for for somebody that's thinking about taking the leap, much like you took the leap to, into the freelance world or doing something a little more entrepreneurial, what would you tell them to think about? Mm, good. Um, I would say may, I would say maybe this actually is a fourth item from the prior one, and I think it plays into the free into the freelance w- world. Is is you know live live beneath your means as much as you can. Um, you know, the money that you make is, is, is certainly valuable because it puts some food in your belly and a roof over your head. Um, but beyond that, the real value of the money you make is, is it gives you flexibility to pursue the things that you really love to pursue. So, um, one, while you're, if you feel like you're making more than you really need, um, save, save it. Um, so that you can be a freelancer right. and, uh, you know, you, you can pursue those things. Um, you know, I think is, I think if you do that, then you have a chance as a freelancer of kind of making it. Um, it's really, really tough if you don't have, I think, some financial, uh, wiggle room, uh, to move. So, um, I don't think I really answered that question. I think I added a fourth one to the prior question, you know, as a freelancer. Oh, yeah. I mean, as a freelancer, I would practice, I would practice those same four things that I suggested uh, there, you know, build your networks, have humility, follow through on your commitments. Don't be afraid to make commitments um, and live beneath your means. Boy, am I sounding old. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I, I mean, I think that's good advice for anyone. Um, and then final question, what, what are one or two books or I know you're a big reader. What are one or two books or, uh, other reading that you would say everyone, uh, should read to understand how organizations operate, how people thrive, how, uh, people are motivated, anything like that? Uh, that's, uh, narrowing that down is, is hard. There's a lot of good ones. Um, I, I would say for me, Probably the the book that might have had the most – I'll name kind of two books. The one that I think might have had the most turning point for me is – I'm not sure how much of it is the book versus where you are in life when you read the book. Right. <laughs> but um, it's the, the Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. And um, so the subtitle is, uh, you know, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. And so, uh, John is a great, uh, great, um, psychologist, um, 
moral moral psychologist philosopher and it's, it's, he kind of weaves in a lot of philosophy behavioral science you know, how do we come to the decisions we make and um in this particular book um why can't we kind of move off of the decisions we make why do we kind of get so entrenched in our camps um and and i i think it was you know in a, in a world where there's more and more polarization and there's kind of a number of kind of uh, technological and, and um, technological factors that I think are driving that polarization. I think it's real helpful to um, understand what those moving pieces are, how they've led us to where we are. And I think it kind of leaves us with a, a real sense of humility um, in terms of how we how we look at things, whether it's business or politics or religion or, or what have you. So that that to me w- was a very important um, book. Um, the other one is a little bit probably more micro oriented, but also kind of very helpful. And it's probably also that because of now where I'm spending a lot of my time is uh, Dan Ariely is predictably irrational um, and how our. You know, our, our minds are, are set up to, in many cases, make decisions that are really not in our best long-term interest. And, um, you know, how do we kind of – how can we cope with that? How can we kind of engineer our environment so that we will do things that are in ours and others' uh, best interest? Um, you know, evolution has certainly been our friend in many regards, but it hasn't been our friend in terms of, um, in some, in some instances. Right. I, th- I think that's a great book. And all of Dan Ariely's, uh, writings, I think, are extremely illuminating, um, in terms of why do we do what we do, uh, even though many of us know we're making bad things. <laughs> and, and, and what are some techniques we can deploy that would, uh, help us out there? Yeah, I, I love it. I think for me, those two books uh, have been a big influence on me as well. So sounds like we have a lot in common. Yeah, you bet. Uh, well, it was great talking to you today, Noel. Uh, thank you for your time, and uh, it was fun. Okay, yeah, and uh, you're welcome, and thank you so much, Paul, for uh, for spending uh, spending this time with me. Hey all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can of course check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com slash membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.